All right, well, I uh, consider it a privilege to be with you today, and I was thinking yesterday when Howard uh, got hold of me in mid-afternoon, told me he had to rush out of town, and he needed someone to step in, so I thought to myself, well, what can we do at Beth Messiah the next day? Uh, how much time do we have to think about this? Well, I thought to myself, it might be as good a time as any to talk a little bit about the issue of worldview. Now, you may say to yourself, well, when was the last time we did a message on just worldview? Uh, probably never. So, as good a time as any to kind of bring this along, and we're going to look at a text today to kind of tie this in. But, you know, we live in an interesting day because, as you probably know, many, many people out there do not hold to our worldview. And I think I taught, oh gosh, it must have been eight or nine years ago at MSI, a mini course on worldview, messianic worldview, and we haven't done it since. So I've never really had a official class at MSI, like an eight-week class on worldview. There's certainly plenty of materials out there, and I know Howard's mentioned the, world worldview, mentioned the word worldview. Henry's mentioned it. We mentioned it. I'm sure everyone's kind of like mentioned that word at some point, but for some reason, maybe we just uh, don't understand the importance of it. And it's incredibly important if you have kids because you need to train them in a worldview, and it's important to our teens, it's important to adults, it's important in every area of education, right? Some of you have already been to college, some of you are in college, some of you have been to grad school, you've been on universities, and you know that people have different worldviews. Now, one of the classic texts that was written a long time ago, but he's updated it, updated it as James Sire's The Universe Next Door, and that's a really good intro as far as if you ever want to get a book on the topic, not to mention there's about 100 or 200 other books written on worldview, but this is like the classic one. And so he really defines worldview as a set of, our, set of presuppositions about the basic makeup of our world. And so really... Uh, what a worldview is, is the glasses through which we see reality. Now, the reason I bring this up, uh, defining it so important, is because I am kind of concerned these days that, in many cases, the way we communicate the good news of Yeshua to others, whether it be to Jew or Gentile, or just talk about the message of Yeshua, is that we tend to think that we invite Yeshua into our heart, and it's really about having a relationship with Yeshua, a personal relationship with Yeshua, and then, you know, we have a relationship with God in this life, and then we go to heaven when we die, and our soul kind of goes on. I'm just kind of giving a picture there of what maybe it's in our mind. And, you know, that's, uh, it's not that that's irrelevant, but in all honesty, you know, our faith is more than just having a relationship with Yeshua and going to heaven when we die, because what we need to understand is that our faith is also, it's linked to a worldview. It's the way we see reality. It's the way we see everything, okay? And so we need to kind of maybe broaden out a little bit when we're thinking about what we believe and how we communicate that to others and to our kids and to our teens and to our congregation and think, you know what? I need to be explaining this as more than simply a personal relationship with Yeshua. This is a way of seeing reality, okay? It answers all the big questions out there. My, you know, C.S. Lewis says, in his, one of his books, he said, through 
my faith, I see everything else. Through my belief in Messiah, I see all of the world around me. And so that's really what we want to be communicating to others and thinking about ourselves. Um, it's very, very important. Now, it's interesting that, oops, sorry, went too far there. Okay, that uh, we have really uh, some interesting worldview questions. And when it comes to like worldview questions, these are really the big questions of our day. I have it on the far column here, those five questions or five topics. And really, we're dealing with people that come from it from two different perspectives. I mean, there's some other worldviews out there. There's, you know, six or seven of them, but I'm only going to really address a couple of them today because that'll lead into our text in Acts 17. But, you know, we look at right here on the far left column, view of reality, origins, humans, morality, and authority, is that many, many, many people certainly are in the category to the left, the far, or I'm going to the right with my hand, this section, this section right here would be no God, and the far right over here would be a, a belief in God. But obviously, there's plenty of people out there that believe that, uh, you know, the material world is all there is, Humans are purely material beings. There's no afterlife, no miracles. As far as origins, of course, uh, we came through mindless and personal processes. Humans are autonomous to chart their own course in life, and humans are nothing but developed animals whose actions are determined by genes and environment. As far as morality, it's just something that we have through, evolutionary, through an evolutionary process. It's something that you know, we use to get along in society. And of course, authority is uh, basically up to the individual. He creates his own life purpose and meaning. And so that is really the opposite of the worldview that we hold to on the right, that obviously both the spiritual material world exists. There's a God, a tri-personal you know, tri God. Obviously, there's an afterlife. Miracles are possible. Humans are spiritual beings and physical beings as well. And of course, we are created by God with purpose and image and morality is objective it flows from the nature of God, and of course, God is the cosmic authority over all of life. Now, if you've ever gone on to a college campus, you probably know that this worldview over here on the far right is not the worldview on college campuses. It's the other one. This is the one that's taught, that one right down there, uh, all the way down, and even in high schools, right? Because they don't, I mean, you know, it's a high school, a public high school. So anyway, so this is very interesting because I want you to understand how important this is because we're going to look at Acts 17 here. If you go to Acts 17 in your Bible, like, oh my gosh, he's finally going into the Bible. But here we are, and here's Paul coming along here. And Paul is uh, obviously one of the foremost communicators in, the, in the, uh, you know, the New Testament. And we know that he went all throughout the region, going to synagogues, and he also encountered a lot of different people, different worldviews, but this is an area in Acts 17 where he encounters many worldviews, and I want to kind of tie this in because, you know, it's so important today to understand the way the culture thinks and the way people are forming their worldviews around us. Their shape, worldview is shaped by media, it's shaped by culture, it's shaped by parents, it's shaped by education, it's shaped by relationships. And I think for all of us, hopefully we're still working on our worldview, we're still forming it, but we do hopefully have some basics down. I mean, hopefully on the far right side here, this is some of the 
the presuppositions in your worldview, uh, the worldview that you hold to, hopefully you've got some of that in the back of your mind, like, yeah, that's what I believe. But, you know, when I get out there in the workplace, and by the way, I want you Monday morning to go into your job and run, walk up to your fellow coworkers and say, do you have a worldview? Just walk right up to them, right? And say, hey, here's five points. Let's go over these. I'm sure it will go over very well. And I'm sure they've thought about it all day. They've been thinking about it all weekend. You know, they went through the stress and they're ready for Monday morning. They're like, let's talk about worldview analysis. Let's talk about these five things. No, probably not. But the point is that your coworkers do have a worldview and many people around you have a worldview, okay? Now, let's look at Acts 17 here. So here comes Paul and he is going to go into uh, going to share the faith in many different settings here. So we read here in Acts 17, all throughout Acts 17, he's actually got three different audiences here. He goes to the synagogue, and then he's got a Greek audience in Athens. And what's funny about Acts 17 is, the more I look at books and study this chapter I've been, I've been looking at over the years, is that it's funny how many, many books are written about Acts 17. They talk about Paul's message in Acts 17, how we can apply this today, and how it's such a Par, uh, uh, an example of how we can reach out to the culture around us today, but they always skip. It seems like they don't talk much about the first uh, 17 or 18 verses or 19 verses. They just go right to the Mars Hill address. And see, it's the first part that you need to get to as well, because Paul is certainly going into the synagogue, and that's very important for us. Now, let's read here. So it says in Acts 17, verse 1, Then they traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to the Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went to the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and showing that the Messiah had to suffer and rise again from the dead. They say, this Yeshua who I'm acclaiming to you is the Messiah. And then some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a great number of God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of leading men. Now, of course, we see here that it says here, some of your translations say it was Paul's custom. It says here in verse 2, in my translation, it says, as usual. I don't like that translation. I like it was Paul's custom. But the point is, it's his custom to go to the synagogue. And we know in Romans 1, it says the gospel, the good news, is to the Jew first. And so Paul always went to the synagogue first because Israel was called to be a light to the nations, and we know the Messiah comes right through the seed of Abraham and through the line of David. He is the ideal representative of his people, and he came to Israel. He says in Matthew chapter 10, he told his disciples, only go to the lost sheep of Israel and preach the gospel to them. Of course, the end of Matthew branches out into the nations, but the point is that Paul knew throughout the Tanakh the pattern was always Israel, was the light to the nations. They are called to be that light, and then people are drawn to them, of course, hopefully, and they have a calling, right? And so it should make sense that Paul would go to Israel first, and he goes to the synagogue first, okay? And by the way, uh, in Romans 1, where it says the gospels to the Jew first, that's still in the present tense, by the way. That's not like past tense. It wasn't like it was to the Jew first, still to the Jew first, okay? So here it says here, so Paul explains that the Messiah has to uh, suffer and rise again from the dead. Okay, so some of your translations say in verse 3 that he was giving evidence. Sometimes it says just reasoning and giving evidence. Depends on your translation. But Paul is explaining to his Jewish audience the Messiah had to suffer. It was necessary for him to suffer and rise again from the dead. 
Now, you notice here that we don't really have any idea what texts, I say plural texts, Paul's talking about. He doesn't really list them. You know, he doesn't say, I'm referring to Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22 or whatever text it is. So we could infer that's maybe what he's talking about, most likely, but we don't know for sure. He could be talking about the entire redemptive plan of the Tanakh from Genesis on was was it had, what had to happen was the Messiah had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Because you won't find a whole lot of texts in the Tanakh specifically you know, saying the Messiah, when he comes, he will suffer and die and rise from the dead. Not a lot of texts there to go to. Maybe a couple, but you know, not really explicit. So we don't know for sure, but the point is that Paul is saying it's necessary that the Messiah had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And of course, he says this is Yeshua. Now, he says here, and it says here in verse 4, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a great, a great number of Greek, God-fearing Greeks, as well as a number of leading women. So, some believed, but then, of course, there is opposition. This happened all the time in the early proclamation of the good news. If you read all throughout Acts, there was always opposition. It says here in verse 5, but the Jewish people became jealous, and they brought together some scoundrels from the marketplace, formed a rob, and started a riot in the city. Attacking Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out of the public assembly. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has received them as guests. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Yeshua. Come another king who is Yeshua. The Jewish people stirred up the crowd and the city officials who heard these things. So taking a security bomb from Jason and the others, they released them. Now, before I explain that, I just want to uh, say something else here. It's very important. Um, you know, we need to understand that Paul is interesting because when you read through this text in Acts 17, you notice at the beginning of this chapter, as I just read, he appeals to the scriptures, right? He appeals to the Tanakh. And you see, we need to understand that when people ask us, how do you know there's a God, which is the most pressing question of all mankind, and it will go on till the day we die, that God is chosen to communicate to humans through two ways, okay? There is what we call natural theology, and that is really where we can figure out there's a God or look to see if there's a God in the world of nature alone, okay? You don't need to open the Bible to look in the world of nature and see there is some sort of designer or deity. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 1, that everybody knows there, there, there's a creator, right? And we know throughout history, people groups all across different nations have all reached up to some sort of God. They might even worship a tree, whatever it is, but the point is that there's something that God has planted in the world of nature The humans should discern there's some sort of designer or some sort of creator, okay? So Paul, with Paul, though, in Acts 17, he doesn't need to do that here. He doesn't need to use natural theology with his Jewish audience. They already, they already believe there's a creator. They're rooted in the Torah. They're rooted in Tanakh. And so he doesn't really need to do that. So what he does is he appeals to revealed theology, okay? And that is based on what we call authoritarianism. Now, everybody in this room, if you go to Beth Messiah and, and you're a member here or you go to MSI, we know that we have an authority. 
And our authority is the Word of God, right? That's what we base our faith and practice on. It's authoritarianism, okay? And that means God's revealed Himself through a written text. Now, you may say to yourself, well, hey, there's other people out there that think they've got the authority, like the Koran or the Book of Mormon or some other text, and you're right, they do. And they think it's just as authoritarian, just as big as an authority as this book right here. So that's why we have to go through the evidence and see which one really came from God and which God is it, and that's what we do with apologetics. But at this point, Paul is strictly using what we call revealed theology. He's just sticking with the text, okay, with the Jewish people, and that's great. But you see, what's happened is in our culture, things have shifted so much that, you know, it's hard today to even sometimes start with the Tanakh with our, uh, our Jewish friends and loved ones, because a lot of times, as you know, they don't necessarily read the Tanakh. They might have a good foundation in the Tanakh. So sometimes, in many cases, you might have to start with natural theology today, in today's world, okay? Not back then, though, all right? Now, let's go back to Acts 17. So it says here, we just read through verse 5 to 9, that Paul, apparently there was opposition, and so this mob uh, forms, and they start creating a problem for Paul and Silas. Now, you notice that what they're upset about, most likely, because it says in verse 4, in the synagogue that Paul went to, there was God-fearing Greeks. Okay, these are, Jew- these are Gentiles who are visiting the synagogue who are actually... Fearing, you know, they do have some sort of understanding of God, the God of Israel, but they're God-fearing Greeks. But they're not converts to Judaism yet, because people could convert to Judaism. So, most likely, Paul's audience here, the Jewish people who created a problem, were not happy that Paul and Silas were drawing people out of the synagogue, these potential converts to Judaism, right? Because they were coming to believe in Yeshua. And so, they were not happy about that, and they created a problem. Okay, and they created a mob here. So they go into Jason's house, and they search for them, and they drag Jason out, and they say here, and they talk about Caesar. It says here in verse 7, it says, And Jason received them as guests, and they're all acting contrary to Caesar's decree, saying that there's another king, Yeshua. Now, at that time, Caesar was known as the king, and they're proclaiming Yeshua as the king, and that's going to create a conflict indeed. Okay. So it says in verse 10 here, as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea. On arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jewish people. The people here were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, since they welcomed the message with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of prominent Greek women as well as men. But when the Jewish people from Thessalonica found out that God's message had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea. They came there to agitating, stirring up the crowds. So once again, Paul and Silas have opposition, but they have success in Berea because this audience searches the scriptures. They are interested. So that is, uh, you know, they're a little better success than Thessalonica. However, the opposition comes in from Thessalonica. The same opposition starts creating a problem, Okay. So it says here in verse 14, Then the brothers immediately sent Paul away to go to the sea, but Silas and Timothy stayed on there. Those who escorted Paul brought them as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. So here's Paul and his companions going to the Jewish people, going to the synagogue, which, uh, by the way, I don't think we do that much today. I don't know anybody that, like, 
goes to the synagogue on Saturdays and like shows up and starts trying to reason with Jewish people from the scriptures, okay? So we notice the times have changed today a little bit. But the point is, though, they go to the synagogue and they have opposition from some people, but this always happened. They have some success. Some people believe, not everyone believes, they have some success. And so Paul right here is really, it's interesting, as the narrative moves on, as Luke tells it in Acts 17, it's, it's so interesting because it's, uh, it's almost like the pattern of the Tanakh where you have Israel as a light to the nations and all the, the, uh, the Gentiles are supposed to flock to Israel because they have the one true God and they have the light. And then Paul understands that, so he goes to the Jewish people in both these two times in Thessalonica and Berea. And then he ends up here, and the next audience is going to be strict, mostly just a Gentile audience. So you have Jews and Gentiles, you know, who Paul's, who Paul's reaching out to. So it's very interesting. Now, when he comes to verse 16 here, uh, it talks about, okay, so then we come down to verse 16. This is where it gets very interesting. So it says here in verse 16, Paul was waiting for them in Athens, and his spirit was troubled within him when he saw the city was full of idols. Okay, now, who here took my idolatry and identity class? Anyone remember it? It was like almost a year ago. They're like, okay, I remember everything about it. Okay, so idolatry, that thing that we just love to talk about, one of the most convicting things that uh, could possibly be in our faith alone. Um, those idols, those things that Paul knows, those things that become the ultimate. Israel had problems with that in the Tanakh all throughout their history. Paul's very aware of idolatry and what a problem it was in Israel's history, but idols are those things that are just consume us, that become the ultimate. We put all our security and identity in that thing. It doesn't even have to be an object. It doesn't have to be a statue. It can be, it can be right from the heart. You know, it can be an idea. It can be a mindset. It can be anything. But the point is that idols are where we put all our affection on that thing, and then God just kind of goes way over here. And so we do that. Probably all of us are guilty of idolatry, I would say, uh, at some point in our lives, or we're still struggling to fight our idols. Um, we might find our security completely in our job or a person or a thing, and, you know, we just that's the ultimate, okay? And, of course, we have to fight that all the time. So Paul is upset because here he is looking here in Athens, and he sees that the city is full of idols. Now, of course, he's looking at physical objects here, and that's what's bothering him. And so he's provoked as a Second Temple Jewish person, someone who was raised on the Torah in the Tanakh. He, know, he knows the problem with idolatry. So it says there in verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and those who worship God and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Okay, so now he's going to encounter these different worldviews. Now, this is interesting. So here we are back to this issue. So now Paul is able to, he realizes here that now he's got a different audience. Now he's going to deal with the Stoics and the Epicureans, okay? And so Paul, being so well-read, <laughs> he knows that some of his audience here is actually some of them, the Epicureans, somewhat are over here, over here on the left, because they actually do believe that uh, there's really no God. They're more materialists, and they don't believe in any kind of God that interacts with humanity. So they'd be closest, the closest thing to being on that side over there. So no, notice again, though, what he has to do, what he's going to do here, he has to think to himself, well, what am I going to do? Because here I've been using the scriptures with people, and now I've got a different audience. Can I use the Tanakh? 
Well, probably not, because now he's going to deal with people that aren't rooted in the Tanakh. They're not Jewish, okay? And so it says here in verse 18, he says, And some of the Epicurean Stoic philosophers argued with him, and some said, What is this pseudo-intellectual trying to say? Now, like I said, the Epicureans were actually uh, materialists, and they actually believed in just seek pleasure alone, okay? Just seek pleasure in life, a little bit of hedonism mixed in there. And then you have the Stoics who believe that uh, re- there is this governing principle of reason that governed the whole universe, and they actually were a mo- little more what we call pantheistic in their view of God. They believe that God is kind of in everything. He's in the rocks, the trees, he's one with everything. Kind of like the Star Wars theme, may the force be with you. Remember, he's like got the lightsaber and, and, and you know, what uh, Luke's mentor, uh, Obi-Wan, would say, Luke, feel it, it's all around you. You know, that's what he means. The force is all around you. It's in everything. So very similar to kind of Star Wars theology, which you guys study all the time. So it says here that, uh, okay, so it says here, and some of the Epicurean Stoic philosophers argued with him, and some said, what is this intellectual trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Yeshua and the resurrection. Okay, so they took him and brought him before and Areopagus, and they say, may we learn about this new teaching you're speaking of, for what you say sounds strange to us. We want to know what these ideas mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Okay, now Areopagus is an interesting thing because that comes from actually Ares, like the Greek god of war, um, if you ever study Greek mythology. And actually, uh, so that's very interesting. So he's at, he's, Paul's before this giant council. You know, he's got this opportunity. Now he's standing before all these, this people group that are not Jewish. They don't study the Tanakh. They don't have any kind of revealed theology in their mindset. And so he, uh, you know, he's going to have to really think here how he's going to respond, but he's got an opportunity and he's going to take advantage of it. Okay. And Paul, God is going to use him. And it says here in verse 22, it says, Then Paul stood in the middle of Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see you are extremely religious in every respect. For I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship. I even found an altar which was inscribed to an unknown God. Okay, now this is interesting because uh, when it comes to the word agnosticism, it's a word I'm sure you guys use every day, right? Because you're all agnostics. No. Okay. You know, an agnostic is somebody who uh, really says that uh, I don't really think I can have knowledge of God. There's no, I just don't know, I can't really have knowledge of God. I, I can't know the existence and nature of God. They're not knowable, okay? So with, that's like the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. Agnostics would say, I don't have, I'm just uh, agnostic about how I can find knowledge of God, Okay. And so, you know, that's like people all around us today. You know, you talk to people about God or Yeshua, and they might say to you, well, I'm agnostic, or I don't believe, or I don't, I don't know how to know if there's a God. They're really saying is they don't know, how do I get knowledge of God? Like, there's a God, like, I, have no, I need knowledge. Like, how do I know there's a God? Okay, knowledge, no, how do I know? And once again, what Paul's going to do here is he's going to go to this issue. He's going to show them that there is knowledge of God, but he's not going to appeal to authoritarianism now. He's not going to appeal right away to the scriptures. He's going to appeal to nature, okay, to the world of nature. So here's what he says here in verse uh, 23, 23 on. So it says here, as I was passing by, I'm sorry, in verse 22, it says, then Paul stood in the middle of 
Ariochobus and said, Men of Athens, I see you are extremely religious in every respect. For I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, and I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, he's saying, you're ignorant about the knowledge of God, right? You don't have knowledge, you're ignorant. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Actually, I should say, they don't have knowledge of the correct God. That's what I mean. It says here, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. To see himself gives everyone life and breath in all things. From one man he has made every nationally has made every nationally to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out for him. Though he's not far from each one of us, and in him we live and move and exist, as some of your own poets have said, for we are his own offspring. Being God's offspring, then we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone image fashioned by human art and imagination. Okay. So what Paul does here is he appeals to, in verse 24 on, he appeals to uh, natural theology. Of course, he's appealing to the fact that there is a God in the natural world that these people can be aware of, and then he's just kind of building his case from there. He can't use the Tanakh, right, because they don't read the Tanakh, and he's arguing that there is a God who's made everything. Now, notice he says right here, in verse 26, from one man he's made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and boundaries where they live so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him though he's not far from each one of us. Now, I'll tell you, when I, let's see, yeah, I, I don't want to go on name that testimony because, you know, Howard always, Howard always calls it, name that testimony. Come on down and give your testimony about Yeshua. That's not what I'm going to do. But I'll tell you what, when I was, uh, before I came to faith, around age 24, I would say that when Paul talks about in Romans 1 about how the creation bears witness that there's a God and people are without excuse, I was in all the way on natural theology. Like, I knew there was a God in the world of nature. I had, no one had to convince me there was a creator. I could walk down my street in Bexley, and my parents lived, and just look at the sky and look around, and, and creation would, like, bear witness to me. Like, I... I I mean, I didn't, like, worship creation. I didn't get down and, like, hug a tree and be like, hey, I love you, tree, or something. I just look up at the sky, and, okay, we're not going to go into that. But the point is that I didn't, you know, I just knew there was a creator. And so God, uh, that was God's pattern. And so Paul is trying to build this case. But the other thing is, when he says here that everyone, he does, God seems to, obviously, he knows where everybody is. You know, the way he's placed people geographically, you know, you don't have to worry about the guy on the island. You don't have to worry about how much knowledge people have of God or whether he knows they're there. I mean, he knows where everybody is geographically across the world, and he's put them in, they're, they're in certain areas. So uh, we don't need to worry about that, okay? And God puts them in certain locations. Apparently, God seems to know where they will be certain places geographically where they're going to seek him. It says here, he did this so they might seek him in verse 27. Perhaps they might reach out to find him. So many places across this world, people are seeking God, right? And that's why what we do is when people don't really, they may even believe in like a creator and they don't really know Yeshua, the way they get to the scriptures and the way they get to authoritarianism, and number two here, is through us. We either take this to them and show them and explain to them the scriptures, or might, someone might mail a Bible to them. And 
Of course, we know in some places in the world, you can't even get Bibles in there, right? Depends on where you go to, like Saudi Arabia, wherever it is. So the point is that God, uh, God has certainly uh, placed people in a place they can, he can find them, okay? Now, so Paul says here, he talks about the different places people live, and then he talks, he appeals to uh, this issue of uh, the poets. Now, there is an interesting parallel here I discovered in Acts 14. Um, if you look at Paul's message in Acts 14 and Acts 17, there's some interesting parallels, is that when he's talking to his audience at Lystra, I'm not going to turn there, it's interesting, the same three things Paul appeals to, okay? So just like in Acts 14, this message in Acts 17, which I just read, we'll see here, Paul says, first of all, he argues God is the creator, right? He says here, you know, in Acts 14, that God made the heaven and the earth, the sea is in them. God is the life giver to all humans, and there's a witness of God in creation, okay? And so people are not ignorant of God. So it's interesting just to study Paul's methods. They're just fascinating how he knew his audience and what he was doing. The guy was just brilliant, okay? All right, so let's go back to Acts 17 here. So what we see here is that, um, <clears throat> is that, okay, so we come down here, he talks about the poets, he argues, he uses their poets, he uses their own literature. He says here in verse 28, for in him we live and move and exist as some of your poets have said. Obviously, Paul had read their literature, he knew how to use their poets here. And it says here in verse 29, being God's offspring then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. That's not who the God of Israel is. He's not, uh, you know, he's not a physical object. He's uh, obviously, you can't do that to him, okay? And so it says here in verse 30, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people to everywhere to repent, because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man. He has appointed, he has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, you notice back here in this uh, Lystra message, this uh, one I had just up, it's interesting that Paul is arguing the bottom here, the witness of God in creation. You know, he says here that God has definitely not left people in ignorance. I mean, they know there's a God, like there's a creator, okay? But he has also now, by when we come to Acts 17, not creation is actually a witness of who God is, but now with the coming of the Messiah, as Paul says here in verse 30 of Acts 17, really, there is now more accountability to mankind, all right? And so because of Yeshua, when he came into the world, God has really changed the entire salvation plan. Now, have you ever had this question? I've, I've run to this a lot. What about people in the Tanakh that didn't know about Yeshua? What about Abraham? What about people that didn't know about Yeshua? All they believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They didn't know about Yeshua. What, what happened to them? Well, uh, it's very quite easy. Uh, the object of their faith was the right God. They believed in the God of Israel. They, were, they had a relationship with God. They were saved by faith. And they were fine with God. But that's fine, and that happened then. But with the coming of the Messiah, at this stage of history, things have changed a bit, okay? Because now with Yeshua's coming, there's more accountability to both uh, Jew and Gentile, right? And so when Yeshua rose from the dead, that is the ultimate proof of who the one true God is, okay? Like I said in the last message about a month ago, I said, if Yeshua rose from the dead 
That establishes who the one true God is. It is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay? So, it says here in verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, they began to ridicule him, and others said, we'd like to hear you from again about this, and Paul left their presence. Now, it says, some men, it says here in verse 34 that some people joined him and believed. Now, it's interesting that when you study commentaries about Paul's methods, some people say, some commentary, uh, commentaries and scholars say, that Paul's Acts 17 message was kind of a failure, believe it or not. And they say, well, you know, he tried to reason with the Jewish people. He tried to use the scriptures, and that didn't really work too well. He didn't get that many people believed. Or he tried to reason with the Greeks, you know, and, I mean, use creation, and then, then he finally appealed to Yeshua with them. And then he only got a few here that believed at the end. And then they say, when it comes to 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about how he comes in the power of wisdom and the Spirit, like he speaks forth powerfully in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And so some people say Paul kind of shifts his outreach, the way he does it. But I would have to say I disagree with that because I think that what we see here is that Paul is faithful, and some people do believe, not everybody, who cares, because it's never about numbers anyway, right? It's about faithfulness. But it's interesting how people judge Paul by his success, by how many people believe. Very interesting how people do that, just like today. So the question becomes for us today is, back to this issue of what we're going to do about uh, this issue of worldview, because the way I see it today is that, you know, I think for all of us, when you look around the culture and you get upset what you see on the news, and you look around and you say, oh, how can they believe that, or how can they act like that, or how can they have that position on something? It's a different worldview, okay? So we can't expect people to hold our worldview, okay? We can't expect people to hold to our presuppositions about reality. They have an entirely different outlook on life, okay? Entirely different worldview, and so what we need to do, in my opinion, is take people through something like this and show them how our worldview is the best worldview. And this is the worldview that explains these questions better than an alternative worldview, okay? Because if you believe this, I mean, honestly, if you believe basically that you are just a, uh, uh, might, might want to summarize it, if you're just molecules in motion, how about that? If you're just molecules in motion or that you are just developed animals who are in your, you know, your actions are determined by your genes and environment, if that's your worldview, why do you fight so hard for human rights and equality and justice? Why, why do you waste your time doing that? I, I'm baffled because if you really believe humans are valuable, that's why you do that. You have to believe humans are inherently valuable to spend so much time fighting for equality and justice in human rights. But if that is your worldview up there on the far left, tell me, what makes humans valuable? Tell me. You know what my worldview says? We're creating the image of God. Every person across this world, doesn't matter what their nationality is, doesn't matter what they look like, doesn't matter who they are, we're all creating the image of God, and we have intrinsic value. God has, you know, created us in his image and we all have value and dignity and equality, okay? It's not based on where we live, what nationality we are, how much money we have, how much money we don't have, or anything. We've got the answer, okay? It makes more sense on the right. That is the worldview that answers that question, okay? That's the worldview on the right that compels us to spend, by the way, may I may say, 
Millions and hundreds and hundreds of believers today are focused on social justice things. The reason they do that is because they believe the humans are creating the image of God and they have value and we want justice and equality and rights for people, right? So we have the answer to that issue, okay? So I think that we really have an opportunity here at this stage of the game to get our worldview out in the public square and not to mention train up our children to know a worldview because um, teaching them this right here, if you teach them just this, you know what's going to happen is they're just going to have a privatized faith. It's just going to be me and Yeshua and the Spirit, and that's all they're going to learn throughout the days of their spiritual lives, okay? And what's going to happen is they're going to not see the big picture, okay? And we need to be equipping them to show them that our faith is more than that. It is a worldview as well, the way we see reality, okay? And for God's sakes, we don't have any idea how much longer until Yeshua comes back. And we don't talk about that anymore because no one wants to because it's been so butchered. So, you know, we might be engaging this world and culture for a long time, okay? We might be here for a long, long time. And so we have to uh, be able to equip our people with worldview training. So I know that Henry's working on something right now on this, and I've given him something. But, you know, that's something that we want to instill uh, congregationally and our families. And, of course, uh, I do it on a campus all the time, as you know. So it's like if I'm going to go on a campus and even do anything, if I don't have worldview training 101, you might as well just not even show up. So, I mean, this is just the way it is today, okay? So let's learn from Paul and appreciate his methodology and how he reached out to people and how he knew the culture at the time. And let's realize that people all around us, um, you know, have a different worldview and be willing to learn about our own worldviews so we can engage them and talk to them about these issues. These are exciting times, challenging times, but it's an opportunity. And let me say one last thing. Just yesterday, I got a text from Lucy, my wife, who uh, my son, my kids are homeschooled, and she's going through a curriculum right now with my son, Jack, on worldview and science, and these were the four worldview questions he had yesterday. I have it on my phone because I didn't have it up here. It says, worldview is big picture. It's the way that the person sees and interprets views the world. Reality and truth never change, but the way he a person thinks about things can affect what he believes is real and true. So these are the four worldview questions my son's learning, who's, uh, he's uh, very young, as you know, 10 years old. Says here, origins, where did I come from? Purpose, why am I here? Identity, what makes me unique? Destiny, where am I going when I die? And so, you know, we can, uh, there's basic things out there we can start now, and so let's be doing that, okay? All right, you said, it. all right, I understand, we need to study worldview. So, Having said that, let's go ahead and close in prayer, and let's uh, go forward today. Lord, we just want to thank you so much for the fact that uh, you have given us the best worldview. You've given us a worldview that explains reality so much better than other worldviews, that you've given us uh, just the way to see reality that makes so much sense. And we pray, Lord God, that we be able to appropriate that and realize that we need to have the big picture. And I just pray, God, you bless each person here. Help us to train up our kids and help us to know maybe we're an adult. We don't even have a worldview yet. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to uh, focus on that and uh, be able to communicate it to others for the days to come. And we pray this all in Yeshua's name. Amen.